0: Greetings, this is Roger Kimball, the editor and publisher of The New Criterion. Thank you for joining me for a quick tour of some highlights of our May 2020 issue, the penultimate issue of our 40th anniversary season. As usual, we have some pretty spectacular essays for your reading pleasure, beginning with James Pearson's contribution to our year-long series on Western Civilization at the Crossroads. It's called Culture Against Civilization, and you won't want to miss that. Nor will you want to miss Victor Davis Hanson's really spectacular essay on Petronius's Satyricon, a very heady satire of decadent life in the time of Nero. Mr. Hansen not only provides an anatomy of that strange novel, but he also calls attention to many, many disturbing parallels between the life that Petronius portrayed and the life we are living now in America, Chirka 2022. There are many other essays in our May issue that you will want to pause over. I want to mention in particular Stephen Balch's very interesting essay on intellectuals. He calls them mind workers. It's really quite a superb anatomy of the pseudo-intellectuality that has been bred by the Academy and has been disseminated throughout American culture. I'd also like to mention Simon Heffer's evisceration of one of the silliest and stupidest books about the British Empire ever written. And that's really saying something. There have been a lot of silly books about the British Empire, but this book by Carolyn Elkins really does seem to take the cake. On a lighter note, you won't want to miss John Steele Gordon's really splendid notebook. It's about the lyrics of musical comedies, beginning with W.S. Gilbert, and Mr. Gordon also talks about Irving Berlin, Dorothy Fields, Ira Gershwin, Oscar Hammerstein, Lorenz Hart, Stephen Sondheim, and many others. It's a charming essay and the perfect way to begin May. Something, I should say, that can be said of the entire May issue. Now for the notes and comments. There are two. The first is called Wanting It Both Ways. The 1936 Constitution of the Soviet Union was a noble-sounding document. It guaranteed universal suffrage, recognized a long list of human rights, including the right to work, the right to enjoy rest and leisure, and the right to housing and health care and provided for old age benefits. Article 125 of the Constitution also guaranteed free speech, a free press, and the right to assemble peacefully. Unfortunately, those guarantees were neutered by a supervening law that subjected those activities to review by a censor. Free speech is guaranteed, comrade, just so long as you say what we like. We wonder if Princeton's president, Christopher Eisgruber, is a student of Soviet history. He certainly seems to have mastered the dialectical technique of pretending to guarantee free speech while actually taking it away. As we noted in this space in November 2020, Eisgruber has behaved particularly badly with respect to Joshua T. Katz, one of the most distinguished scholars in Princeton's Classics Department, for many years one of the university's most popular teachers, and, we are proud to say, a visiting critic for the new criterion for the 2022-2023 season. Katz's tort was to have written an article for the online magazine Quillette, in which he criticized a proposal to guarantee teachers of color more sabbatical time and institutional support than their pale-faced colleagues. If implemented, Katz noted, the proposal, quote, would lead to civil war on campus and erode even further public confidence in how elite institutions of higher education operate. Yes, it would. But for making that observation and for criticizing an obnoxious activist organization called the Black Justice League, then and now defunct, Katz was transformed overnight into a pariah. Eisgruber himself condemned Katz's statements, and one of the president's minions said darkly that the university would be, quote, looking into the matter. A university-sanctioned internet gallery called to be known and heard, viewing of which is mandatory for all incoming students, dilates on Princeton's supposedly racist past, and singles out Katz for pointed abuse. A handful of faculty rallied to Katz's defense, but Michelle Minter, who glories in the title Vice Provost for Institutional Equity and Diversity, yes, really, ruled that the gallery was not an official Princeton production, though it appears on the university website and bears the copyright of the Board of Trustees, and that Katz's rights had not been violated because he had not been vilified on account of some, quote, protected characteristic, for example, race, creed, color, or sex. It is a surreal situation, redeemed in part by the energetic defense of free speech mounted by a recently formed group of Princeton alumni called Princetonians for Free Speech. In an ongoing series of articles, its founders Edward L. Yingling and Stuart Taylor Jr. have dissected the whole sorry saga of Princeton's Soviet-style doublethink about free speech. It's hard to predict what effect, if any, their efforts will have, but we are happy to see that Katz's case is attracting some of the attention it deserves. In a gimlet-eyed article published in mid-April in Tablet, Katz's colleague, Sergei Kleinerman, a distinguished mathematician, gets to the heart of the issue. Christopher Eisgruber wants to champion free speech. He also wants to champion social justice, which is inimical to free speech. Joshua T. Katz revealed the contradiction. For this, Kleinerman points out, Katz must be, quote, punished as an example to us all not to interfere with the university's plans to remake itself as an ideological factory for the production of anti-racist social justice, end quote. It's the same throughout the educational establishment. Eventually, the contradiction, or perhaps it's only the hypocrisy of mouthing support for free speech, while prostrating in obeisance to the social justice juggernaut, will bring down the entire decaying edifice. That's the good news. The bad news is that eventually can be a very long time indeed. Pigment problems. Back in 2015, Theodore Dalrymple, a writer well known to readers of the New Criterion, published Admirable Evasions, How Psychology Undermines Morality, the main title, as many will doubtless have recognized, comes from King Lear. The line is spoken by Edmund, the illegitimate son of the Earl of Gloucester, and one of the play's chief villains. He is also given some of the play's most brilliant lines. In the middle of Act I, he soliloquizes bitterly about Gloucester's invocation of celestial portents to explain his familial discord. This is the excellent foppery of the world, that when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeit of our own behavior, we make guilty of our disasters, the sun, the moon, and the stars, as if we were villains by necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion, knaves, thieves, and treachers by spherical predominance drunkards, liars, and adulterers by an enforced obedience of planetary influence, and all that we are evil in, by divine thrusting on, an admirable evasion of whore master man, to lay his goatish disposition on the charge of a star. In Shakespeare's time, an excuse for bad behavior might be astrological, We lie or cheat or pander, not because of our own weaknesses, but because of an external, celestial influence beyond our control. The worm of our infirmity is not in us, but elsewhere. Hence, we are not truly, not fully guilty of our sins. Indeed, with a little ingenuity, we can argue that our bad behavior, being instigated by something outside ourselves, makes us victims hence deserving of pity and even, indeed, celebration. Edmund wasn't taken in by such subterfuges. He understood that his infirmities were his and his alone. Quote, Tut, I should have been that I am, had the maidenliest star in the firmament twinkled on my bastardizing. Today, of course, we don't find excuses for depravity in the stars, but in our upbringing, our bank account, our sex, our skin color. I am habitually late for work, but it is because I grew up poor. I take drugs, but it is because I am oppressed. I burned down a police station, shot a cop, looted a store, but it was because of systemic racism. Or maybe it is because of the patriarchy, or heteronormativity, or transphobia, the list is long, but no less specious than the spherical predominance or planetary influence Edmund been contemptuously adduced. We have often had occasion to ponder this dynamic as the cult of victimhood has conspired with society's new obsession with race to produce a rotten goulash of hectoring irrationality. The writer Katie Herzog called attention to a particularly noxious specimen some months ago when she publicized an audio recording of a virtual Grand Rounds given by one Dr. Aruna Kilinani at the Yale School of Medicine's Child Study Center. Grand Rounds at the Yale School of Medicine's Child Study Center. Bear that in mind doctor Killinani describes herself as quote a forensic psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who specializes in quote treating race, gender, sex, artists and whiteness. What do you suppose it might mean to treat race or gender? What would it mean to treat whiteness? Is the contingency of having white skin a disease? Dr. Kilinani practices in Harlem, but studied at the toniest institutions, Columbia, NYU's Langone Medical Center, and New York Presbyterian Hospital Weill Cornell Medical Center. According to her website, Dr. Kilinani is, quote, Interested in every single person who has a story that has yet to be told. Conservative, liberal, old, young, blue, black, cis, trans, Asian, fat, skinny, rural, urban, and so on. Her grand rounds talk at Yale, the psychopathic problem of the white mind, wasn't so welcoming. Under the rubric, Learning Objectives, a poster accompanying the presentation, told us that, quote, at the conclusion of this activity, participants will be able to understand how racism is part of the mind, that white mind that arose during colonialism with a series of lies around violence, quote. Yes, there is something deeply wrong in that sentence, but it's not only a matter of typos or misprints. The disease is deep. Just how deep is on view in some of Dr. Kilinani's more piquant observations. To wit, quote, This is the cost of talking to white people at all. The cost of your own life as they suck you dry. There are no good apples out there. White people make my blood boil. White people feel that we are bullying them when we bring up race. We are asking a demented, violent predator who thinks that they are a saint or a superhero to accept responsibility. They have five holes in their brain. It's like banging your head against a brick wall. It's just like sort of not a good idea, End quote. And here, at about seven minutes into the presentation, is the piece de resistance. Quote, I had fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, burying their body and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away relatively guiltless with a bounce in my step, like I did the world a expletive favor. End quote. Dr. Kilinani is clearly a special case. Most observers will wonder why she is allowed to see patients rather than being required to seek help herself. But the real psychopathology here goes far beyond her. It involves Yale University, the Yale School of Medicine, and, in particular, its Child Study Center. According to that poster advertising the talk, its, quote, target audience was, quote, trainees in child psychology, psychology, and social work, faculty, clinicians, scientists. Really? Moreover, the course of which Dr. Kilinani's talk was a part quote, will fulfill the licensure requirement set forth by the state of Connecticut. Think about that. Quote, I had fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, burying their body and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away relatively guiltless with a bounce in my step. Will that be on the exam? Yale, like many of the most prestigious educational institutions today, is a bastion of woke identity politics. Increasingly, it substitutes the new planetary influences of race and the spherical predominance of exotic sexuality for the more pedestrian talismans of learning, intellectual rigor, and civic responsibility. In this sense, Killinani. Is more a symptom than a cause of the disease. She embodies, to be sure, an ugly and repellent expression of the sickness that is ravaging our elite institutions. But the cause is in the spirit that would not only allow but actually celebrate such disgusting performances as the psychopathic problem of the white mind. Remember, This was not at some wacko fringe grotto, but at Yale University, operating, in this instance, as an agent for the state of Connecticut. People like Dr. Kilinani should be watched closely, but after being ostracized from any contact with the vulnerable, ignored. Its institutions, such as Yale and the regulatory apparatus of the state, that need to be exposed and then dismantled. Granted, that is a tall order. Prudent people will give Dr. Kilinani a wide berth, but she has done us all a service by showing us the alternative. Thank you very much for joining us. This is Roger Kimball signing off for The New Criterion. I hope you'll be with us next month.